Father, thank you, Lord, for another day. Thank you that we can worship you and praise you, seek your face, long to be more like you. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to your truth this morning. Encourage our hearts, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to forget what lies behind, to reach forward to what lies ahead, to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Unify us, Lord, in you. Help us to consider one another more important than ourselves, Lord. Help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto you and onto others. And please be with us this morning. Fill us with your spirit. May your word speak to us. May it do the spiritual heart surgery that is needed, Lord, in our lives. So we love you, Lord. We praise you. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's teaching is The Battle for the Mind. The Battle for the Mind. The Bible has a lot to say about our minds. Talks about our inner man throughout the scripture, our hearts, our affections, our, our ability to reason and think. One word study uh, gives this helpful description of the mind. It's the organ of receiving God's thoughts. The organ of receiving God's thoughts through faith. That's our mind. 1 Corinthians 2.15 states, we have the mind of Christ. If you're a Christian, you have the mind of Christ. If you've turned from your sin, if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you believe in him, you have a new mind, new heart, new affections, new thoughts, thoughts that are brought into conformity with Jesus Christ. I was convicted earlier this week. I was doing a lot of research online and watched a almost four-hour debate on a certain topic, and I already seen it before, I think a couple years ago, and I thought I'm going to watch it again. And then after that, I was digging some more, and I'm watching these interviews on this topic, and then I'm reading articles on this topic, and I'm watching more and more YouTube videos, and then rabbit trail after rabbit trail. And I don't know about you, but I get online, and I click on this, and then this leads to that, and then they're promoting this, and I'm over here, and and before I know it, I started with this biblical topic and I end up on something like a 9-11 documentary. And I'm like, how did I start from here and get over here? And now I'm reading articles on 9-11 or I'm, I'm researching that and I'm like, well, who was behind that and what's going on? And I'm just trying to uncover every rock I possibly can. It's, I think it's just the curiosity in me. Maybe there's a couple of you that can relate. But at the end of maybe five, six hours, I don't know, eight hours, I'm going, where am I? What, what, what am I looking at? Now I'm just clicking on YouTube videos, and I feel like I'm wasting time. I feel like I'm not filling my heart and mind with things that are encouraging, things that are uplifting, things of the truth. Now, is it wrong to look up 9-11 documentaries? I told Leah the other day, I'm like, I love documentaries. Just send me documentaries. I'll watch documentaries all day long on whatever. It doesn't even matter what topic. Supersize me or whatever. Like, I'll watch on food. I'll watch on conspiracy type things, whatever. I, I want truth ultimately in life, truth across the board in my life. And so documentaries do a good job of exposing things and showing truth. But if we're not careful, our minds can wander off. Our minds are moldable. Our minds um, can be led astray. Our minds can be drawn to futility or vain things or even emptiness to where we could start 
by maybe wanting to learn or even study the Bible. And before we know it, we've wandered off into a place we probably shouldn't go. Satan wants your mind. He wants the minds of the children. Even people in the LGBTQ community have expressed that. If you've seen those videos online, we're going for your children. Now they're just making it blatant. But we know Satan's schemes, as the scripture says. He'll use any means possible to get our eyes off of Christ and onto anything else. It doesn't matter what it is. You look in the Old Testament, and God is making fun of his people Israel. He's like, look, you've gone after a rock, a stone, a, a piece of wood. Does your piece of wood talk? That was their idol. The, can your idol really save you? It's a piece of wood. Like, really? Satan will use anything. He'll use a golden calf. He'll use a tree. He'll use any kind of perversion to get our attention off of Christ so that we're not enthralled by him, captivated by him, delighted in him and in his beauty, in his glory, in his goodness. So Satan will tempt you and I. He'll try to blind us. He'll try to distract us. He uses all the tools he can so that Jesus won't be magnified in, in our hearts and in the hearts of those in the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's what Satan does. He blinds people's minds. He does not want them to see Christ, his glory, the glory of the gospel. So they can't see, they can't believe because Satan has clouded their minds. Spiritual blindness. He's subverted their thoughts. They can't savor Christ. They're distracted. They're confused. They're deceived. That's the world around us. I typed in the words in Google this morning, subverted thoughts. Subverted thoughts. Sometimes I'll just look up words and I'll look up a thesaurus and what words mean and the etymology and I I wanted to see what was online when I typed in subverted thoughts. One of the first things that popped up was a book from this person named Sue Ellen Browder. It was published in 2015. It's titled Subverted, How I Helped the Sexual Revolution Hijack the Women's Movement. You go onto Amazon and you look at the description of the book and it says, quote, as, as a longtime freelance writer for Cosmopolitan Magazine, she wrote pieces meant to soft-sell unmarried sex, contraception, and abortion as the single women's path to personal fulfillment. She did not realize until much later that propagandists higher and cleverer than herself were influencing her thinking and her personal choices as they subverted the women's movement. If you read the book, and I haven't, supposedly she came to Christ towards the end of her life she realized that she was being subverted, that she was being led astray herself. Here she's trying to subvert people. And that's what the scripture says. People are deceived and they're being deceived. False teachers, they're deceiving people and they think they're getting away with something. When really Satan's the mastermind behind it, deceiving them as well. They're on a slippery slope to hell. So praise God she came to the light. As, and that's what it said in some of the comments that she came to the Lord. I thought of this illustration. Might be a little silly, but bear with me. Imagine this 4th of July, you're over at my house or you're watching a fireworks show and I hear that 
well, I've seen some of the fireworks shows around here, and they're pretty good. And during the grand finale, right, the fireworks are going up, and it's a spectacular ending to the show, and you're right there up front, and it's loud, and it's almost as if the ground's shaking, and you're enthralled, and you're just really enjoying this show, and you turn around, and you see the kids, my kids maybe, some of the other kids, because I just bought Leland some of those poppets or poppers, whatever you call those things that you throw on the ground. He loves those things. Now imagine during the grand finale, it's just going on for five minutes, amazing fireworks, and you see the kids gathered around and they're just jumping up and excited and going crazy because of these little poppets. Wow, look at those lights. Look at the sound of that. And you're like, really? Like, we've waited all year for this. It's an amazing fireworks show, and you're over here with the mundane. You're over here with the little things like, come see this. And I feel like that's what Satan does with people in the world. Silly illustration, but he's blinding people's minds, their hearts, their eyes. Here's Jesus Christ. Here's the light of the world. Here's the glorious gospel. It's amazing. It's like the grand finale, so to speak. And people are all caught up in their little trinkets and their little things over here, their little hobbies. And God's like, look over here. Look at me. I want to bless you. I'm the king of glory. They're enthralled by a shallow ditch when they have the Grand Canyon right in front of them. Playing in mud puddles while they have Niagara Falls crashing down right beside them. Jeremiah 2.13 says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Endlessly trying and digging and searching. And God's like, I'm the fountain of living water. I just want to bless you. Here I am. Yet they will not see him. They will not find him as long as they're walking in sin, living for themselves. Satan has them right where he wants them. But we as Christians have the mind of Christ. We see his beauty. We see his glory. We fear him. We honor him. We tremble before him. But the scripture teaches our minds can be deluded. We can wander. We can be led astray. We can be darkened through the temptations of the enemy and the deceitfulness of sin. So one question for us today is what is the enemy using in our lives as Christians to cloud to distract, to subvert, to darken in our minds the glory, the beauty, the goodness of Christ and the gospel. And I think one main way he does it is through the internet, through video games, through technology. It's something I'm very convicted in. And we don't want to be legalistic about these things, but we want to practice Christian wisdom. It's the day and age in which we live. You know, many times after church, I go home after service and I'm praying on the way home and I'm seeking the Lord and I get home and I just get on my phone and I'm just looking at things and it's, it's just natural for me to do that and it's not wrong and I go on Facebook Marketplace and I look at weights and stuff and I don't really need any weights for my garage. I have enough to mess around with and, but I'm just sitting there scrolling, looking at weights and then I'm like, I just told them, you know, we need to watch what we're doing on our phones and four hours later, I'm still on Facebook Marketplace looking at umbrellas for my backyard and this and that, you know? And it's just so easy to do. It's not, it's not wrong in and of itself. 
we just have to practice Christian wisdom and say, am I spending more time in these things than in the Lord? Where's the balance here, Lord? Because I'm convinced that many people, their minds are being led astray by the things of this world, particularly technology. Second Corinthians 11.3, we talked about this verse several weeks ago. Paul says, I'm afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness that your minds would be led astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3. I'm afraid for you, Corinthians. You're being led astray just as Eve was. And I believe if we're not careful, we can slowly be led astray from the Lord and the simplicity and purity devotion to him as well. So I want to give you three ways today to win the battle for the mind. Three ways to win the battle for the mind first one's found in Ephesians 4, 17 through 23. If you want to turn there with me. Point number one, we must renew our minds. We must renew our minds. Ephesians 4, 17 through 23. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the, ig- from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The word there for futility of mind found in verse 17, right at the end of that verse, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. It's the vanity, King James, emptiness, lacking purpose, perverse, depraved, the instability of your mind. You want to be rock solid in your faith in Jesus. You want to be steadfast and immovable in your faith in Jesus. You want to have a sound mind, sound heart, sound judgment. And it's not so with those in the world as Paul calls them, Gentiles. That's the way in which they walk. And he says, you didn't learn Christ this way. He goes on to say twice in this passage, to be renewed, to renew, or at least once in verse 23, to renew your mind, the spirit of your mind. What does it mean to renew? To be spiritually transformed, to take on a new mind in Christ as we've been talking about lately, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, taking new strides in your sanctification, quote-unquote, your sanctified reasoning. According to most polls, 65% of Americans call themselves Christians. That number's down from 90% 50 years ago. 50 years ago, 90% of people in America claimed to be Christian. Key word is claimed. Even 65% is probably an inflated number. That's 175 million Americans claim to be Christians. 
And I was just thinking as I was putting the study together, how many of these Christians are being discipled, are being taught verses like 17 through 23? You know, Paul's warning Christians, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Many Christians are, are taught, you, you, you can't go back to your old self. You can't walk like the Gentiles. You're a new person. You're always going to be a new person. You can't fall away. You, can't, you have the Holy Spirit now. And praise God, we do have the Holy Spirit. And praise God, we are sealed in him. Now, seals can be broken. Jesus' tomb was sealed. That was broken. There's seals in the book of Revelation. Those were broken. We want to know what all the scripture has to say. We want to read all scripture, right, and incorporate it into our theology. And I believe many portions of scripture are being cut out inadvertently, maybe, in some churches. They're focusing on certain things. Paul tells the, uh, the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, I preached the whole counsel of God. I didn't shrink away from telling you anything that you needed to hear. Many churches don't tell everything that's needed to hear, that you can walk as the Gentiles do, as Paul says here. He wouldn't be warning them that you should no longer do this if you can't do that. These are true warnings. How many people are being warned that they could be darkened in their understanding, verse 18? How many are, are exhorted to lay aside the old self? To constantly lay aside the old self, not just when you come to Jesus. Great, lay aside the old self, you've come to Jesus, now you're good. No, I beat down my body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27. I beat down my body. I continuously beat down my body and make it my slave. So after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified, rejected, cast away like a coin in which the imprint of Caesar was no longer visible so they would throw it in the trash. It's out of circulation. I believe he's not just saying disqualified from ministry, disqualified in the race of the Christian life. If I don't beat down my body, and he's not talking about like Martin Luther whipping yourself till you're bleeding and trying to atone for your own sins and work your way to heaven, I beat down my fleshly self. I tell my body no. When my body wants to do that, when my body wants to go online for 10 hours and just mindlessly look at things, no, I beat down my body and I say, no, body, this is what you do. My master is Jesus. He's my Lord. He's the one that instructs me what to do. My body wants to do all sorts of things, right? And you hear that in the world today. My body, my choice, my body, my rights. What are you doing with my body? And it's not even their body half the time, right? There's another baby inside with different, gene different DNA. It's a whole different person. That's a whole nother discussion. But no, Jesus is my Lord. He's Lord of every part of me. He dictates what I do. And when I'm in the spirit, walking in the spirit, filled with the spirit, no, I tell my body what to do. Those who live according to the flesh must die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all those who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, Romans 8, 13, and 14. We beat down the fleshly body within us that wants to do all sorts of things that are against the Lord. We continue to walk in Him, and that correlates to renewing our mind. There is a battle for our minds. I ran across a man on the internet this week by the name of Jack Hiles. Perhaps you've heard of him. 
I think I was born at the height of his ministry. In the 80s and 90s, Jack Hiles had one of the biggest churches in America. He claimed a membership of 100,000 people. He had 100,000 people on the books. I think in the early 90s, he had around 200 buses. The buses would go throughout the neighboring cities and bring people to the church. Massive altar calls, hundreds of people being baptized. Claimed to be a conservative, Bible-believing Christian, preaching the word of God. However, many close to him shared a different story. His daughter, 10 years ago, went on TEDx and gave a talk titled, From Cult to Courage. She talked about how it was a, she believes, a 50,000-person cult that he was the cult leader. So these are the type of things that I tell you I can just research because I wish I just looked into it for like 10 minutes. But then I'm watching this thing on him and that thing on him and reading this part of a book on him and reading this. And I'm like, well, this person said that. I want to confirm what they said if that's true. So I'm, I'm looking into this and that. And it's like, whew. But so some people discredited his daughter. Well, she has shorter hair, so I'm not going to believe her. You see, her shirt's not baggy enough, so the testimony she's giving of her father is not true. This one guy had 11 points as to why he said, I'm not listening to what his daughter says about him. It's interesting that his daughter said that if he told everyone to drink Kool-Aid, kind of like Jim Jones, I think it was, he said everyone would do it. He was able to grab a hold of their hearts and their minds and indoctrinate them with some crazy things. Although many people online say that he was a faithful Bible teacher. And I'm not discounting that maybe some, if not many, of his teachings were biblical. But it's kind of like rat poison, right? 99% good product and 1% or a half percent, just enough poison to kill a rat. She claims her dad lived a double life. She was afraid to talk about it for 28 years. She said, I didn't even tell my neighbors, my closest friends. Nobody knew what went on at our house. My dad, she said, hated my mom. He hated her. He had mistresses, at least one mistress. His deacon or Sunday school teacher took her wife. He had an office right next door to his with her door leading right into his office, covered this all up, supposedly spent $100,000 and gave it to her and told the husband to go sleep in the basement. And you can go research all this stuff. I would recommend just reading the Bible and meditating on scripture. Um, But I felt bad for this woman, you know, and I hate hearing these stories. I hate reading these stories. I hate the damage that sin has. And so that's why I I teach a lot on holiness, and that's why I try to live a holy life, and that's why I realize that let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, and if it were not for the grace of God, there go I as well. So it's both and when we're calling people out, right? It's like, look at this sin or look at the hypocrisy, but Lord, Keep me, help me, help me stay humble, Lord. So bad doctrine leads to bad living. And he taught, well, he taught a really easy believism, I I believe is what he taught, that repentance is not needed to come to Jesus Christ. You don't really need to repent of your sins. Just believe in Jesus. I believe they're two sides of the same coin. When you repent, you can't live in sin and truly believe in Jesus. Believing in Jesus means I am turning from sin. Change a mind, change a heart that leads to a change of action. If you read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 
through 11 and so forth where Paul talks about living in sin. Do not be deceived. And he gives this list of things that people are now living in today that they're deceived thinking they're okay and homosexuality and idolatry and adultery. And he gives this list and then he says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of Jesus. Sanctified by his blood. That was your past life. Some Christians teach, no, you could still live in that. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Can't live in sin. If you're truly a child of God, the Holy Spirit will convict you. So the fact that this man supposedly lived in sin for so many years, I don't believe he was, you can't renew your mind. You can't grow in holiness. You can't grow in the Lord and be sanctified if you're living in sin and covering it up for years. He said, I don't believe Jesus needs to be your Lord to be saved. You just believe in Jesus. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you just want to accept Jesus as Jesus but not as Lord, are you really accepting the real Jesus? So here's what Jack Hiles said in 1994, a sermon titled Shame on Us. And I didn't even want to share all this, but it was just bothering me all week. So I feel like you guys need to know. He says, quote, there walks down the aisle someone to say yes to Jesus Christ. He's heard the message of this incorruptible seed. And he's running back and forth on the stage as he's saying these things. It's a YouTube video online titled Shame on Us. And he's holding the Bible in the air. It's a King James Version. He says, this is the incorruptible seed. He goes on to say, that same moment someone goes down the aisle of a church so-called that was that uses the corruptible seed, the American Standard Bible, the NIV Bible, the, the Revised Standard, and they too get born again. He says, you say, can you get born again by a corruptible seed? He says, oh yes, but not the same family. Jesus said in John 8, 44, ye are of your father the devil, to the religious people. Matthew thirteen thirty eight. the tares are the children of the wicked one. He goes on to say, you've been born of the devil's family because you've been born of corruptible seed. What is he implying? If you've been saved by an NIV, RSV, ASV, you're not a true child of God. You've been born again to the Satan of, fam- of the devil. You've been born of the family of the devil. So if you're listening to that and even maybe you're a new believer and you got saved by the NIV and you're trusting in Jesus and you're humble before him and you hear this man who has a 20,000 or 100,000 person church, whatever it is, and he says something like this, now you're doubting your faith. Do I really know Jesus? What about all those who lived before the King James Bible came out? In the first century, second century, third century, fifth century, they couldn't be saved. If, If I'm understanding what he's saying right, I want to make sure I'm understanding him, right? People on the YouTube thing were saying these, they understood it the same way. People in other countries that don't have that Bible, how are they saved with a Russian translation or a German translation? It's very, 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 very dangerous. We must stay humble. We must stay discerning and realize that there is a battle for your mind. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. The Bible talks about people with a depraved mind. 
who err in the truth. And I don't believe this man could be renewing his mind, and there is the product of it. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The dichotomy, don't go this way, don't be conformed to the world. I think one translation says, do not allow the world to mold you or to shape you. Do not go with the mold of the world, but be transformed. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. A caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly. That's the Greek word for transformed, and it happens through the renewing of our mind to where we become more and more like Jesus. Less and less like the world and more and more like him. So our minds must be renewed through the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? What does that look like? It means, I believe, delighting in the word, meditating on the word, praying through the word, edifying one another in the word, growing in the word, singing the word, memorizing the word, loving the word, glorying in the word, being sanctified and renewing our minds through the word. We renew our minds by conforming our thoughts to his thoughts, being saturated in the truth. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. We need the truth. If you'll turn with me to Psalm 119, I just want to share some scriptures of how I believe the psalmist renewed his mind. Psalm 119, I'll give you about 10 scriptures or so. We'll just kind of jump through these. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to to your word. Verse 11, Psalm 119:11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes, I shall not forget your word. Verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Verse 25, my soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Verse 28, my soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 50, this is my comfort and my affliction that your word has revived me. Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 74, may those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. Two more, verse 81, my soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. And Psalm 161, Psalm 119, 161, Princes persecute me without cause, but, th but my heart stands in awe of your word. There's actually more in there, believe it or not. I just gave you a, a few of them. How do you win the battle for your mind? Number one, you renew your mind and you do it according to God's word. You treasure it. You love it. 
You long to have more of it. You wait on him through the word. Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of your mouth more than my daily bread. Jesus said where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If you treasure God's word, that's where your heart will be. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your mind will be renewed. Your heart will be renewed. Your mind will be transformed the more you meditate in God's word. We're memorizing Psalm 34 in the men's group. So guys, if you don't have that memorized by 4th of July, the whole thing, you're not allowed over. I'm just kidding, right? But we're just trying to, we're trying a couple verses a week. Psalm 34, first two verses one week, two verses the next week. As I'm walking my daughter through the neighborhood and mosquitoes are biting my ankles, I'm memorizing Psalm 34. I didn't know that they could bite you through your socks or whatever they do with those crazy things they have. I'm learning more as I'm living out here. But I'm hitting them off and I'm memorizing Psalm 34 as I'm walking. You know, and sometimes I'm walking and I'm like, "Uh, is this really doing anything? I don't feel it right now. We got to push through that, right? Lord, help me. Teach me. Like David says, I'm waiting on your word. I know there's going to be fruit that's born through this. So I'm going to continue to push through. I do it in other areas of my life. When I'm working out and I'm halfway through, I don't feel like doing another set of squats, which I never really do. I don't like working out legs, but it's, but I'll try to push through. I do it in other areas. I'm, at my job, I don't just say, I quit. Sorry, teacher, I'm not going to go do that or this. I listen. When it comes to the word, though, it's very easy for us to just give up. And I'm saying push through. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life by which you have been called and made the good confession in front of many witnesses. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Keep fighting for the faith. Trust that God is going to show up when you memorize his word. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in tough situations in my walk with the Lord. I've been in a hospital room or I've been at a rescue mission and the guy needs counsel. He's on the verge of going back onto the streets and I'm, I have words that come to my mind through God's word for that moment. And I'm telling you, it's happened many, many times. And I'd walk around that chapel at my job in Oxnard, California, quoting Psalm 63, just walking back and forth as God would meet me there and encourage me through his word. We need to renew our minds through his word. Lord, help us. Point number two, Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Point number two, we must guard our minds. We must guard our minds. Philippians 4, if you want to turn there with me. You probably heard these verses before. Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. That's what we need to dwell on. It's a military term. Guard in verse 7. Verse 7 where it says guard. 
Phrureo. It's used in 2 Corinthians 11.32 when the king in Damascus put a guard around the city. He did not want Paul to get out. Paul's preaching the gospel, radically saved. They want to put an end to this right away. So what do they do? They put a guard around the city. But too bad. Paul had Jesus on his side and they lowered him down in a basket, if you remember the story, and he got away from the guard. That's the difference. When you have the Lord guarding your heart and mind, nothing gets through. He won't allow Satan, as Jesus said, no one will snatch you out of my hand. No one will snatch you out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. When you are in Christ, when you are guarded by him and the Father, you are secure. It's like a force field around you as you are in him trusting in the Lord. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. How do you guard your heart and your mind? Well, look at verse 6. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. That's the first part of the answer. Prayer supplication with thanksgiving in everything. According to one commentary, it states, there is nothing which pertains to body, mind, estate, friends, conflicts, losses, trials, hopes, fears, in reference to which we may not go and spread it all out before the Lord. The Bible says pray at all times. First Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. Sometimes lately I've just been calling my kids together. We're going to pray. And they're like, what do you, it's not dinner time. It's not lunch time. It, wait, are we going to bed, daddy? It's like four in the afternoon. I'm like, no, we just need to pray. And they're like, well, what's wrong? Like, what's happening? I'm like, nothing. We just need to pray. Okay. And I've just been convicted lately. I'm just going to take my family or my kids and I'm just going to pray. Now, does it need to be a long, drawn out 20 minute prayer? No, because I'm not good at that, and I'm working on that. And they start wrestling and stuff halfway through. Anyways, after two minutes, I'm looking down, and they're kicking each other and fighting or whatever. And I'm like, okay, I'm all into it. I'm like pleading with the Lord. But I want them to know we need to pray at all times. Pray when times are good. Pray when I don't feel like I'm being tempted and things just seem to be going well. And also praying during the tough times, praying through the trials, praying through the tribulations, praying when there's pressing needs. And that's what supplications means here in verse 6. Deasis, it's heartfelt petitions arising out of deep personal needs. It's specific needs. It's the same word, same Greek word used in James 5.16. The effective prayer or the effective supplication of a righteous man can accomplish much he goes on to say elijah had a nature just like ours and he prays that and he prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three and a half years and then he prayed again and down came the rain and he's saying he has a nature just like ours do you trust that god is going to show up and god is going to do a work in your life and god is going to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding when you petition him when you plead with him that is faith faith is trust do we trust the lord so the byproduct of this constant prayer and petition to the Lord is a peace of God, it says. And this will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You're guarded by this peace that you have in him. It's a peace of 
God, a peace that only God can give, a peace that drives out anxiety and worry and fear. It's a peace that says something like this, if God is for me, who can be against me? It's a peace that says the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. There's peace and security in the God who guards us and he keeps us in Christ. To think that the God of the universe, the most powerful being in the universe who is incomprehensible, is guarding us in Christ when we seek him and trust him. What do we have to fear? What do we have to be worried about? What do we have to be anxious about? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He tells Job, it's all mine. Where were you when I created all of this? Go look outside. It's all mine. I'm keeping it in order. I'm keeping this thing going, and I'm coming back again for you to bring you to where I am. If that doesn't give you peace, I don't know what will. That's the peace of God that we need. And it comes through the renewed mind. It comes through prayer and supplication, which guards our hearts and minds in him. So important. Here's the last point. We must acquire a logical mind. Point number three, we must acquire a logical mind. And I'll explain what I mean. Sometimes when Leah and I get into a disagreement, a friendly disagreement, we do this about once a year or so, once every couple years. Been married 12 years now. Okay, that's a joke. If you're married, you probably disagree at times with your spouse, right? It just happens. Don't throw the laundry over here, throw the laundry over here. Why did you leave the toothpaste over there? Just simple things, and it's, you can laugh. We laugh about it now. First month of our marriage, it was like, you know, it, boxing gloves coming out. Why is the, you know, whatever it may be around the house? But now we laugh about many of these things. But some of my response over the years has been, is that an emotional argument or a logical argument? We'll be arguing lovingly back and forth. Is that logical or is that emotional are you going off feelings or these facts? Which is it, feelings or facts? One person says facts don't care about your feelings. Perhaps you've heard of that. And what I've learned over the last 12 years is she'll show me I'm typically, I'll admit it, I'm being irrational. And I worked an overnight job for six years as an EMT security guard and an ambulance driver. And I said many, that's when I say unrational things, when I'm super tired or I'm super hungry which over that six years was very often. And I'd come out of the slumber, I'd get some sleep, and I'd realize, okay, that was just dumb, okay? So, Paul gives us eight things in Philippians 4, 8. Look back at verse 8, and then I'll show you the connection here. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Meditate on these things. The word dwell there, or think, depending on which translation you have, is logizomai. It's where we get the English word logical. Do the logical thing and meditate on these things. If you're truly a logical person, this is where your mind will be, Paul's saying. Your mind will be filled and saturated with these eight things. 
And it's no wonder that these eight things correspond to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number one, true, truth. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Number two, honorable. Meditate on that which is honorable. Jesus is the honorable one. John 6, 23, Jesus said, I am to be honored just as the Father is honored. Number three, right or righteous. In the Greek, Acts 3.14, Jesus is the holy and he's the righteous one. Number four, pure. Think on things that are pure. 1 John 3.3 says he is pure. Everyone who has this hope set on him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Number five, meditate on that which is lovely. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, so we must lay down our lives for one another. He's the lovely one. He's how we know what love is. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How would we know love apart from Jesus Christ? Paul says, someone will rarely die for a righteous man, but for an unrighteous man? I'd ask people at the rescue mission when I'm teaching them, would you guys jump in front of a train and push just a random stranger out of the way and jump in front of that train to save their life? say, absolutely not. Never do that. I said, what about the guys sitting around the table right here? They're walking on the train tracks and a train's coming. Would you push them out of the way and get hit by the train for one of them? Some of them that liked each other said, maybe. I said, what about the guys in your gang? What about your mom? What about a family member? Absolutely. They would say, I would jump in front of that train. I'd push them out of the way. No problem. And I'd bring them to where Paul says in Romans, rarely would someone die for a righteous man, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Sinners, people that are going against the king, living in sin, anarchists, so to speak, and God extends his love towards us in Christ. That is love. Meditate on that which is lovely. Number six in this list, good repute. I believe it's used only once in the New Testament. It's from the Greek word meaning fame. Matthew 9.26 says that Jesus' fame went throughout the land. They were telling of his fame. They were telling of the great miraculous power that was coming forth through him. Number seven, excellence. Second Peter 1.3, Jesus called us by his own glory and excellence. He's the excellent one. He's the one with a good reputation, as I said, number six. And number eight, anything worthy of praise. Ephesians 1.12, we who were to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. What does it mean to acquire a logical mind? It means to do the logical thing and dwell on Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, set your mind on things above, not on the things of this, wor- of this world. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Dwell on Jesus. 
meditate on him. Remember what he did for you. Remember what he went through. Hebrews 12.3 says to consider him. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You might feel like growing weary and lose heart. When that happens, the writer to the Hebrews says, consider him. Do the logical thing. Think on him. Remember what he's done for you. Remember what he's went through. And remember that when you go through hard times, you're following in the footsteps of your Savior. And that's endurance. That's perseverance. And that is what will ultimately, through faith, get us into the kingdom of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All of this that we've talked about today is an outpouring, an outworking of faith in our lives, trusting in Jesus. We renew our minds, we guard our minds, and we do the logical thing, and we dwell on Jesus Christ. I close with my favorite song as of late, just a few lines, what a friend we have in Jesus. I almost want to call Leah up to sing it, but just let me read these, and I can sing it too, but... I'm losing my voice. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are you weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. That's where we need to go.